You know, sometimes the best family comes when you make it your own. And so we're going to be talking today with M.G. Hennessy, author of The Echo Park Castaways. Stay tuned. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Book Circle Online. I'm your host, Tammy Govea, and I am in studio today with M.G. Hennessy. Hi. <laughs> the masses are here for it's you. It's very exciting. And your little castaways. <laughs> oh, poor castaways. <laughs> poor castaways. Just that word in and of itself just holds so, so many different connotations. Yeah. And that was something that I, I was actually, I had the title of the book before I wrote a single word of it. And um, it was really important to me because, you know, there is sort of a bit of an ocean theme in the book. And I wanted to have kind of the dual meaning where they're sort of stuck on their own little island, even though it's more of like a figurative island and a metaphorical island than a real one. Um, and that they really are kind of cast away by society. You know, they are the kids that society rejects. They're lost, forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, even when they're trying to be found, it's like nearly impossible. Yeah. Sometimes with the whole the whole system, the foster care system. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Nevaeh's, Vic's, Quentin's, and is it Mara or Mara? Mara. Mara's story. Um, so basically, uh, Nevaeh, Vic, and Mara have been sharing a foster home for the last year or so. Like Vic's been there the longest. And it's not an ideal foster home. Their foster mom, Mrs. K, is actually, you know, borderline negligent. She's clinically depressed after the loss of her husband. And he had been the one who was really excited to foster kids. So she's keeping it up, but more out of habit than anything else. And she's constantly threatening to stop fostering children. So the three of them are there and they're sharing a house, but you know they really have don't intersect aside from that. I mean, Nevaeh kind of makes sure the kids get dressed and get to school, but they don't really have any other relationship. There's no love there. And then Quentin, who is a child on the autism spectrum, um, gets assigned to the house and he starts running away. And it's upsetting the balance of the house. They're already worried that Mrs. K might stop fostering and it seems like this could push her over the edge. So Vic determines that what Quentin's doing is trying to get back to his mother. And Vic being someone who has a very rich fantasy life. <laughs> I love a, Vic so much. <laughs> I love Vic so much too. Vic was my favorite. Um he decides he's going to undertake an epic quest to help reunite Quentin with his mother. Very Don Quixote of him. Exactly. I mean, actually, the original title of the book was The Epic Quest of the Echo Park Castaways. Okay. And they thought that was too long to fit on the cover. I like that, though. <laughs> Talk about the, uh, so the age range. Nevaeh's the, the oldest. Nevaeh's the oldest. She is in eighth grade. Okay. So she's 13, almost 14. I remember being eighth grade. Okay. Eighth oh, grade I know. Wow. I know. And so she serves as sort of the surrogate mom in the house. She kind of picks up all the slack and does the things that Mrs. K should be doing, but, you know, doesn't really have the wherewithal to do anymore. Um, Vic is 11. And Mara, I don't know if I specify, I think she's like, I like, I think she's like six, seven. She's definitely the youngest. And she's the only one who doesn't actually have a voice in the book in terms of having a point of view. But for me, Mara's almost like the conscience of the book. And 
when you look back at the story and the plot line, she's been kind of the driving engine all along, like little times when the plot needs a nudge forward. Yeah. Mara very quietly provides She's it. always on the peripheral Exactly, of exactly. I'm going to have you read a little bit okay. from, the, from the book, from the Echo Park Castaways. We're going to open with Nevea. And as you pointed out, the entire book is written from the three children's POVs. Yes. Correct? Yes. So I'm excited to talk to you about that. Yeah. Okay. So it's technically third person, but it feels like a close first, and it literally alternates from one to the next in order, from Vic to Nevea to Quentin and back and forth. Um, so this is Nevea's section. Uh, it was past eight o'clock by the time I got Mara bathed and ready for bed. Then I had to remind Vic, repeatedly, to do the same. The new kid was already asleep, as far as I could tell. He was lying down, fully clothed, still wearing his shoes. But he's in bed, and that's all that matters, I told myself. I really didn't have time to deal with whatever his issues were. I still had to do my own homework. I ignored Mara's light snores as I worked at the desk in the corner of our room. I liked this time of night. The drone of Mrs. K's bedroom TV was a little annoying, but other than that, it was nice and quiet. I started with algebra, then finished the worksheets for social science. We were learning about Rome, which, based on my ragged textbook, seemed pretty much the same as our world now. If you were rich, life was easy. If you weren't, not so much. I was willing to bet that back then, kids like me weren't being fed grape-soft platters, that was for sure. And if something happened to your parents, you were basically on your own. Good luck to you. Pretty much like the foster care system, at least as I'd experienced it. Most foster parents fell into one of three categories. Religious nuts, people doing it for the money, and elderly folks like Mrs. K who either never had kids of their own or wanted to replace theirs when they moved out. Of those groups, I much preferred the old people. Of course, I'm kind of a unique case. A lot of kids don't stay in the system long to begin with. Their parents work out their problems or another family member decides to take them in. But my mom died when I was two years old. And as far as anyone knew, she was my whole family. So unlike Vic, I've never thought that someone might come for me. When I was really little, I used to dream about getting adopted like Orphan Annie or something. But that became unlikely after you turned six. So instead, I came up with a plan. If no one was going to rescue me, then I'd rescue my own self. What a lot of people don't realize is that the foster care system can kick you out when you turn 18. And I mean the day you turn 18, whether you finish school or not. Luckily, I have a late birthday in August, so I'll only have to find a place to stay for a month or so before college starts. UCLA has a special scholarship program for local foster kids, so it shouldn't be too hard for me to get in. If I stacked my courses and went to summer school, I could graduate in three years. I'd need to stay at the top of my class to earn a full scholarship to a great medical school. Four years of medical school, it was almost impossible to finish early, I checked. And then three years of a medical residency, and I'd finally be a full-fledged doctor. Helping people for a living would be nice, but honestly, I cared most about never having to worry about the cost of anything ever again. I decided to finish my English homework in bed. I worked hardest on math and science, because if you wanted to become a doctor, those were the most important subjects. But this year, English had been pretty cool, too. We were reading this book, Holes, about a kid who got sent to what was basically a prison work camp. I could totally relate. My last placement was with a family who'd taken in seven foster kids. 
The foster mom and dad didn't even bother learning my name. They marched me straight into their garage, which was filled with sewing machines on rickety desks. They told me that whenever I wasn't in school, I would be helping with their hobby, making dog beds that they sold online. And if I didn't finish at least five dog beds a day, I wouldn't get dinner. I spent three months there. I'd sleep, go to school, come home, make dog beds, eat dinner, and fall asleep exhausted every night. Then one of the other kids nearly cut his finger off while helping with their other hobby, carving floating ducks for hunters. They didn't even take him to the hospital, just slapped a few band-aids on it and sent him to school. When the kid fainted from losing so much blood, Child Protective Services finally swooped in. The foster parents were arrested, and all seven of us were taken back to the Welcome Center, this awful place where they keep foster kids between placements. I hated it there. We were assigned to plastic-covered bunk beds that smelled like pee. The food was disgusting, and there were a lot of fights between the older kids after lights out. I basically never slept at all whenever I got stuck there. This kid in holes had it even worse, though. He was forced to dig these giant holes in the middle of the desert with a bunch of other kids, and the people in charge were the worst bullies imaginable. I was almost at the end of the book, and I was really hoping the kids would end up getting their revenge. Of course, that would never happen in real life. If this were a true story, the kid would do his time and then leave and never think about the other kids again. And they wouldn't think about him either. And no one would ever report the grown-ups who made them dig holes. And it would just go on and on and on. That's why I liked reading fiction. It was nice to get a happy ending for a change, even when it was totally unbelievable. As I said before when we started the show, I love that last line. You know, it's just the power of fantasy. Absolutely, I know. And I think that's a lot of it for these kids is in their own way, they each have these coping mechanisms that they've developed. And for Nevaeh, it's kind of, you know, her 15 year plan for the future. And for Vic, it's his, you know, he has this alternate reality in which he honestly believes he's a super spy doing these incredibly impressive missions. Oh my so. God, I was right there with him. I was so in that world with him. <laughs> I know, part of me was kind of hoping it was true. When I started writing, I was like, how cool would this be to yeah. have like a whole group of super spy kids? <laughs> Maybe it is really true. <laughs> well, and he had a good point, which is no one really pays attention to kids. Like, you know, they're above suspicion. So it's not a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> how did the story find you? Like, which character... You know, I initially the book it's it starts now with Quentin, um, but the original opening of the book was actually Vic's chapter, where you're in his head and he's telling you all about his like spy persona and how he got recruited and about this organization and how you know it's all very real. And then you cut to Nevaeh's section where she's watching. You know, he he's talking about his like parkour, and you get to Nevaeh's section where he's falling off a bench and she's like you know, God, not again. Like, what is it? Like last week he was a superhero. Now he's a super spy. And you realize that the entire chapter that you just read was a fantasy um, and that it was all happening in this kid's mind. And yeah, there was something about Vic that just kind of jumped out at me. I mean, his voice was in many ways the easiest for me to write in. Um, I really loved his voice. I just loved his, he's got this, for a kid who's been through so much, he has this sweetness and this like naivete, like he's still kind of innocent in a lot of yeah. ways. And I find that really charming that for a kid who's very street smart, he still managed to hang on to this childlike wonder, you know? Well, the fact that any of these kids in the foster care system has any semblance of 
innocence and yeah. naivete is like you just want to hold on to that for as long as you possibly can yeah. as a reader it's like please 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 just i know things are falling apart right now and this isn't a good situation but it's it was an interesting response because as an adult i really just wanted them to hold on to that i know and I especially know. with with mara yeah you know her being the youngest i think yeah i don't know or maybe being a little girl you yeah. know there was just that sense for me of like oh my god come here yeah i know <laughs> you know i just want to hold you and protect you and i know um what, so that kind of brings me back to why the foster care system? Like, why a story about that? Because it's such a, gar- a gargantuan issue. I know. Um, you know, I originally became interested in the foster care system when I was volunteering for LifeWorks at the LGBT Center here. Um, and out of that experience, I wrote my first book, which is The Other Boy. And that one's based on a transgender boy who um, has been living stealth at his school and gets outed. Uh, and while I was working at the center, a lot of the population there, the teen population, are kids who are homeless or in the foster system um, because they were kicked out of their houses once they're, they came out to their families. And, you know, talking to them and hearing these stories about the different scenarios they're in and finding out how hard it was to find placements, particularly for teens, um, it really shook me. I mean, there, was all, there were all these things about the foster care system that I was completely unaware was happening. I think like most people, I just sort of assumed, sure, like, you know, Child Protective Services or here in L.A., it's DCFS, comes in, they take the kid, they take care of them. They're put in some sort of, you know, I, I don't know if you ever saw the TV show The Fosters. Yes. But like they're in this sort of like magical arts and crafts bungalow, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, you know, it's challenging, but it works out. And the reality is um, so much worse. So I became a court-appointed special advocate, a CASA, um, which means that I'm basically assigned to one child for their entire journey through the system, which is usually about two years. And I go to the hearings with them. Um, my job is to sort of figure out what the most, well, really like to fill the gaps for the social workers. So if the child needs a different school, you know, and the social worker doesn't have time to find one, I do that. Their like, caseloads must just be through the roof. Well, the caseloads, I mean, here in LA, there are 30,000 kids in the foster yeah. care system. There are 9,000 in all of New York city. So, and 20,000 in all of New York state. So we have more than New York state, which is the second largest system just in LA County. And the fastest growing population the fastest growing of zero to five years of age. Exactly. No. And so it's, it's really challenging. So the social workers literally have twice as many cases and, you know, all, everyone that I've met in the system, the judges, the lawyers, the social workers, most of the foster parents are extraordinary people who are really doing their best. But the sheer volume of the problem is just overwhelming. So um, volunteers like me try and fill the gaps as much as we can. And, you know, like I have a friend who she was assigned to a little girl who's 13 and loves horses, but has never actually seen a horse, like just kind of love them, you know, from books and TV shows. And so she found her uh, a place that would give free horseback riding lessons and found her transportation there because that's also a big part of the problem is um, getting the kids, you know, we, we can find them these things, but getting them to them mm-hmm. is a challenge. So, you know, that was something that was really important to me is to write this book so that other people, especially kids, would see what the system's actually like. You know, because they might be going to school with foster kids and not even know it. I know there was um, something that was written about the other boy. I'm going to put 
this up here. Now, this came out in 2016, and it's yes. now in paperback. Yes. yes, just came out in paperback. The Other Boy. Um, so this was a story about Shane, a trans boy who's already transitioned. Yes. Um, but is this line, I don't know how you came up with it, but has chosen to live stealth. Yes. Okay. So I, re- I read that line, and I literally almost started crying. <laughs> because just the idea of a child having to make that conscious choice of being invisible Yes, although, so for him, it's a little bit different. So he transitioned, his his mother was very accepting. And when they moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles, and he was in a new school, he decided that he wanted to just go into school as himself. He didn't want to go in and announce that he was trans. He wanted to just be seen as the boy that he was. So, so it's a secret of sorts. So it's a secret of sorts. And I talk a lot about in the in this, in that book, um, about the kind of the difference between something being secret and something being private, because secret can imply something negative a lot of the time, but private is, you know... There's nobody else needs to know. It's nobody else needs to know. And, you know, and the truth is that for him to come out again as a trans person to his friends, because no no one knows, his friends don't know, his baseball coach, his teachers, um, for him to come out again, it would risk people seeing him as something he's not, Whereas for a gay person coming out, it's, you know, being seen for who you are. So ironically, you know, since he's already transitioned, um, he is being seen for who he truly is. But the question is, how much of that trans identity does he want to own as he gets older? And, you know, and a lot of it in this book, too, is, you know, he's not, it's not just all about him being transgender, like he's dealing with divorced parents and some of the issues with his father getting remarried. He's got his first crush. Um, He's that's causing some tension with his best, best friend, Josh, who's, you know, struggling a little bit with the fact that he's kind of stepping into adulthood with, you know, and not adulthood. I mean, I feel like I love that age, like 11 to 13, because I feel like it's really special. Like you've got one foot in childhood yeah. and one foot in some kind of the grown up world, you know, and it's this like push and pull. Um, and that's something that's a big part of the book with Shane. Um how many stories are out there like this, you know, that deals with the trans community and, and you know, foster care system? And was that part of the reason you wanted to write these stories? Because maybe there's not a lot of representation out there? Especially with the other boy. Um, I mean, I really wrote that for this trans boy I was working with who um, we had been trying to find books because he was a big reader. And what he realized, and, you know, we both realized as we searched is that most of the books were about trans girls they were almost entirely transition stories where basically the child is like trying to get up the courage to come out to their parents or they're just coming out to their parents. And he said to me, you know, it's not like you transition, which means you, you know, present as your true self. It's like, not like you do that. And then you live happily ever after. Like there's a whole lot of other things that need to happen after that. And especially for Shane, you know, he's at the point where he's trying to decide if he wants to start taking cross hormones, you know, if he wants, and there is a question about that, you know, his father doesn't really want him to, and his mother supports him if he decides that that's the way he wants to go. And a lot of that stuff, which is what trans kids his age are dealing with now is not addressed in any of the books mm. that were out there. And foster care, I do feel like it's a little bit, it's, it tends to be romanticized. Um, really? I, I mean, I, I think that there are you know, foster kids in books. I don't know that there are many stories. I do. I feel like it's kind of glossed over. And I think it's largely because it can be a tricky issue. Um, 
I don't know. I know with my kids, I've got kids who are 13 and 14 years old. And sometimes getting them to read like, quote unquote, social issues books is a challenge because it feels like work. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the sad thing, I mean, it's totally untrue. I mean, I feel like the best of these books are as readable or more so than, say, like dystopian fantasy. You know, that's the whole point is you want a book where the narrative is sweeping you along. And you're learning about these things, but it doesn't feel like you're learning, right? That's that's the goal. I know. Speaking of the narrative, um, Q, his voice. <laughs> um, so he's he's diagnosed with Asperger's, which is in the spectrum of autism, correct? Yes. yes. So is that high functioning? Like, where does that fall in the autism spectrum? Um, my feeling with Quentin, this was, I did a lot of research on the autism spectrum and talked to a lot of parents who have kids that are somewhere along it. I have a nephew who's on the autism spectrum as well. And, um, Quentin is actually higher functioning in, than he, especially like over the course of the book, he becomes more and more high functioning. He suffered a severe trauma and it's kind of slid him farther along Mm. the the spectrum and made him much more non-communicative than he would have been previously. So when he comes into the house, he's basically mute. He barely speaks um, and he won't interact with any of the people and they kind of don't know what to do with him, honestly. And I think that's, that was a big challenge for me was trying to get that voice right because I really wanted to stay true to it. And I didn't want to make him, you know, this, I didn't want people laughing at him um, some of the stuff that he says in his passages and just are very funny just due to his unique worldview. Yes. But I wanted to present him as like a really whole person, you know, in the way that the others are and make sure that the voice was distinct, but not um, kind of a parody, if that makes sense. So you said you spoke with parents who have children with autism. Yes. So is that how you were able to come up with his voice, his his inner dialogue to himself? That helped a lot. I mean, I also, I watched a lot of documentaries about it. I read some nonfiction memoirs, you know, by people who are on the spectrum. I mean, I've tried, like, whenever I'm researching a character, I really do try and get, like, as much information as possible. And, you know, I get asked sometimes, like, you know, is this character based on this person? Sure. You know, and I feel like they're all composites. Like, Nevaeh is sort of loosely based on a friend of mine who's an adult now, but who grew up in the system and had a very similar experience to what some of the ones that Nevaeh talks about, you know, in terms of like 11 homes in, you know, 13 years Mm -hmm. and just kind of being shuffled along and never really finding that place to call home. Um, It's, yeah, I mean, I think it was, it's always a challenge with a book like this. And, you know, especially as a white woman and a cisgender woman, uh, I had to really do as much research as possible so that I, you know, did justice to these populations. The role of family and how important that is, the role of of home mm-hmm. and the idea that your family is truly, at the end of the day, it's what you, you create that. Yeah. You know, it's not necessarily blood, blood connected. Right. And I think the story is, is, that's what the story is about. You know, your family isn't, is what you make of it. Yes. Or not settling, but you, you know what I'm saying. It's no, just that absolutely. kind of. absolutely. I mean, it's a big thing in the LGBT community yeah. is it's found family. Yes. Right? Yes. Because so many people can't rely on the family that they were born into. So, 
you know, that's a big part of it is realizing that your family, your support network um, can be whoever you choose to let into that, you know, circle of trust. Were you, okay, when you're writing this, you thought, okay, I got the beginning, middle and end, boom, and the story just came out and it was great. Or were there parts of it that completely veered in a different direction and you thought, oh my gosh, I wasn't expecting that. I don't plot at all. You don't? No, not at all. That's so amazing. I mean, this was probably the most plotted book that I've written just because I knew that they had to get to the end of a quest. Like they had a very they had to get out of Echo Park. They had to they had to get from Echo Park to Torrance. Yes. Like they had a very clear line. Oh my gosh! That you know, I knew that I wanted them to achieve that end goal, even if what waited to the end might not have been what they were expecting. Um, that like actually gave me like a more linear drive than I think I've had in other books. I mean, usually I really genuinely don't know sitting down what I'm even going to write that day. So I'm constantly surprised. I mean, I feel like. <laughs> You know, there was one time, the only book I haven't sold was a book that I sat down and I did like the whole whiteboard, you know, scene by scene. And um, I know that that works great for some people. And I'm a big advocate of, for writers, like whatever works for you, go with it. Just do it. Yeah. Just do it. (laughs) But for me, doing that, mapping it all out, um, by the time I actually sat down to write the book, I was bored because I knew everything that was going to happen. And so it just, that system doesn't work for me. So yeah, I'm surprised every day. (laughs) What was the biggest nugget after you finished this book that you were most proud of? Um, let's see. I really love the final, I mean, I I think there are a couple of scenes in there that are really special to me. Um, and a couple of conversations that I think feel very real Mm -hmm. and very true. Yeah. Yeah. Very organic. And that was really important to me. Um, I, I, lo- I just love the kind of magic of the beach scene. Like, I think that there's this great beach scene that, you know, I hadn't really planned. And um, that one did come out of nowhere. It was just going to be like a little aside in the book and it ended up turning into its own chapter. And yeah. so that one's really special with me. Because again, like, I think, especially writing for this audience and writing about these subjects, I think it's so important to end on hope, you know, and to have an ending that's not unearned. But that's realistic, but hopeful. What do you mean, not unearned? What do you mean? Well, I mean, I didn't want it to be fake. I didn't want it to be like I wave a magic wand and yeah, let's suddenly, just fast forward exactly. And, and look, all and they sudden, all have yeah. you know, and like, oh, they all got adopted by Daddy Warbucks, and they're living <laughs> in this great house together because it's you know, I I didn't want anything that felt fake. Um, but I also, like I said, I have kids this age. And they're still at a point where if they read a book with an unhappy ending, they are done. Yes. They do not. They're not having it. They don't want that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, going back to everyone's POV, I really miss Mara not having a POV. Yeah. Some people have said that. I but mean, I get, I get now talking yeah. to you. It's like, okay, I get it. Yeah. And I think that was the thing is I feel like, you know, there's something about her being kind of this, you know, not that she's me, but she just, she doesn't speak English very much. And, or does she? Or, she, or does she? Come which on, is, that little Which trickster. is a great question. No, it's a great question. I think that, you know, and it's one of the reasons that she and Quentin connect, I think, before, and they, you know, any of the others do, because they do have this kind of, like, silence together, you know? They mm. have this sort of shared understanding. Um, and he feels safe with her in a way that he doesn't feel safe with the other kids. And she kind of gets him through some situations because of that. And 
I don't know. There was something I liked having this one voice that wasn't present because I feel like it was almost like having someone kind of standing and watching. And, um, you know, like I said, like she is the moral conscience of the story and she is the one kind of nudging it along at every turn. And it felt like that would be a little less special. Like I wanted it almost to be, you know, not supernatural, but yeah, you know, like that she would be this kind of mysterious presence in the book. It was interesting too. To me, there were really no villains in this book and it could have been so easy for you to, to make Mrs. K or, or pink lip lady, you know, kind of the caricatures, these villainous, yeah. Type of folks that probably see in a movie, yeah, you know, because you're they prefer extremes, right? Um, this just seemed like a story about people who are just trying really, really hard, yeah, to either just get by, just survive. They're yeah. doing the best that they can, yeah. the best that they can falls so short, yeah, absolutely, and disappoints so many people, the kids, especially, yeah. Um, the humanity of the adults in this is what I really. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I mean, I think that was the important thing. And the truth is that, you know, a few outliers aside, you know, like I said, most of the people who are in the system helping these kids are genuinely in it because they want to help the kids. You know, they just can't always do everything that they would like to be able to do. Um, And that's really the challenge, you know. And I think that it's something that's really struck me working as a CASA is that, I went in initially, you know, kind of all like unicorns and rainbows. Like I'm going to be, it's going to be great. Like I'm going to get this kid and I'm going to like change their lives and they're all, everything's going to turn around for them. And, and what I realized very quickly is that, um, there are just limitations and there's so, uh, so, you know, a lot of the cases we get, especially as CASAs, because we really get the kids who are in the most need, it's kind of like looking at a house on fire and trying to figure out where that fire is worse and putting that section out first. How do you determine the kids that are most need? What is I don't that's actually done for us. That's done by the CASA office Gosh. and I'm, you know, assigned to someone and um so I usually work with teenagers because they are the trickiest cases yeah. and they are the hardest to place. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just, you know, it's a challenge like you see like there's, it took me six months to get one girl an eye exam. You know, I mean, it takes like we have another child who needs to have um, a psychiatric evaluation. Months, months on the waiting list. So it's these things that you kind of take for granted. You know, and it's funny when I was writing this, I had a lot of um, comments from the editor and the sensitivity reader saying like, well, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, they wouldn't assign a child on the autism spectrum to a parent, you know, that was foster exactly parent my thought. who couldn't handle, you know, he had no experience with that. And he would have a classroom aid. And I was like, are you kidding? I mean, honestly, like, yes, in a perfect world. But I mean, I have friends who are, you know, very involved parents trying to get IEPs for their kids. And it takes months. I mean, you have to really work for these things. It's like, again, it's a big system. There's a lot of people in it and it's not automatic. So, you know, navigating that bureaucracy is challenging for anyone. And if you're a foster parent with three other kids in the house, you know, the chances of you getting that done expediently Mm. are pretty minimal. Um, You know, plus most foster, I mean, a lot of times it's family members who are working two jobs and raising their own kids and agree to take in 
you know, a niece or a cousin or whatever. And then, you know, they're still trying to navigate their own lives, which were already challenging. And then they have this other child who they're responsible for, who has, you know, some other challenges. So when someone takes in a foster child, I mean, Nevea was saying, okay, I'm just gonna, I've just got to stick it out. I've got to make sure Mrs. K, I'm on her good side because I just need a few more years before I go off to college. Right. Um, so when someone takes in a foster child, I mean, it's not adoption. They're not there forever. You said two years is typically? The- well, it's two years through the system. So basically by the end of that two-year period, the goal is either family reunification where for whatever reason they've been removed by the home, that issue has been resolved and they go back to their parents. Um, or they can be uh, adopted if you know if that's an option. It becomes less and less likely, to be honest, as the kids get older, mm-hmm. but that's an option. Or legal guardianship, which is basically, you know, usually with like a relative or a foster parents who agrees to be their legal guardian but isn't actually adopting them. And if the kids are, I mean, it's funny, it's it's all very specific. Like if the child is 16 at a certain point in the court case, you can apply for KinGap if they're staying with a relative where they will be, they will get services still um, from the county through the age of, I believe it's 21. But, you know, you have to have a lawyer who applies for that. You have to meet certain qualifications for that. So it's, it's tricky because, you know, as Nevaeh says, like a lot of the kids end up basically booted out of the system when they're 18. And recently, in recent years, there have been some laws and a movement to change that and to up the age to 21. Um, I don't know where people came up with 18 and 21 as these magic numbers for anything. You know, saying a, a no, child is suddenly an adult when they turn 18 makes yeah. no sense to me. And there's this amazing documentary actually on HBO right now called Foster that is about um, six kids in the, I think it's six kids in the LA foster care system. And they're all in very different circumstances and different ages. And the two older ones kind of break your heart because they're really trying. You know, there's like one girl who's, she's, she got into college, which is, a miracle. I mean, it's literally 3% of these kids actually end up going to college. 50% of them don't graduate from high school. And um, and then 58% end up either homeless or incarcerated mm-hmm. within five years of coming out of the system. So the fact that she made it into college is remarkable. But even though she's achieved all of that, she's struggling and she keeps having to drop out and re-enroll and drop out and re-enroll because you know, she's not fully equipped and there is no safety net for her really, right? There's no parent to help with tutoring or any of the other support that most college kids would get. You know, I'm trying to think of who I resonated with the most in this. Um, I think Vic was my, my perfect fan. <laughs> I, could, I could completely resonate with Vic because of his inner life. You know, and just all the right. imaginary circumstances yeah. and adventures, like, totally get that as a kid. Because um, I was an only child. So yes. I was reading constantly and often in imaginary worlds, <laughs> 24-7. Um, and it was my escape. You know, when things yeah. got too intense, I got the book and just disappeared into the book. Um, and that's kind of what Vic's sections are in the book, I think, because he is, you know, he is, like, on a mission. Like, you're basically, his his sections of the book are, like, you know, a... 11-year-old version of a Jason Bourne novel, you know, like, <laughs> yes. and, that's, and that's very deliberate because <laughs> it needed to be, otherwise I feel like it would have been a little relentless. Like you needed to have those breaks where there was just something kind of fun happening, right. you know? Otherwise he'd drive the reader crazy like he drove Nevaeh crazy. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
I want to talk a little bit about, so we talked about Casa, mm-hmm. um, Casa of Los Angeles. Uh, again, that stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate. Yes. Now, is this a super long process if you want to be a Casa? Not really. I mean, um, I think it was, the initial training is, I believe I had four hours a night, once a week, uh, over the course of, I want to say six weeks. Um, but they really, I mean, they, it, you know, it's a national organization. There are all different ways to complete the training. The initial training is fairly intensive, but to be honest, it was also really fascinating. Yeah, I can imagine. Like it really, I felt like it really made me confront some things in myself. Like they, they really challenge you and they talk a lot about, you know, kind of economic disparity and race issues and perception. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, because it's, the reason that these um, children are, you know, one's African-American, two are Latinx, uh, is because that is the demographic breakdown here in Los Angeles. But what I wanted to make very clear and what I learned in the training is it's not that the that people of color are abusing or neglecting their kids in larger numbers. They're just much more likely to have them taken away. Yeah. So statistically, that institutionalized racism is really prevalent, and um, and it definitely has an impact on the system. And you see it when you go into children's court. You know, you see who's waiting there, and it's like it's it's striking. Like there are not very many uh, white people, you know, and that's not because you know their kids are not neglected or abused. It's just much more likely that they'll stay in the home. That must have been scary. Your first court experience. I no? wouldn't say scary. I mean, it's. I mean, it's, I guess scary for the child. It's wrench. But, it's wrenching. Yeah, you know because um, and there's some judges who do like there's actually like one judge who specifically has one day that he has is his separation day where he knows that's the day when he, where he puts books most of the cases where he's going to have to have the child removed from the home. And, you know, I mean, yeah, there's people sobbing, there's kids screaming. Oh, my gosh. It's not like that all the time. A lot of time it's just this sort of oppressive atmosphere. Um, And they do everything they can to keep it, you know, child friendly. I mean, the kids are, you know, the it's like beautifully designed. Every kid who goes in gets a teddy bear. You know, they're, they're very like, you know, it's very kind of laid back. It's not an official courtroom. It feels much homier. Okay. Um, it's not like a big, you know, don't picture it as like a law and order. The gavel. Yeah, it's yeah, not. Yeah. It really is not that. Okay. Um, you know, they're very, like, really, they're about the size of the studio. They're not big rooms. Okay. Um, but still, it's just, it's it's hard. It's challenging. And so I think it was just very eye-opening for me the first time. Um, and talking to the kids the first time. I mean, the very first foster kid I worked with, one of the first things she said to me was, I feel like everyone in my life uses me for something. Mm. And... You know, I just had read her file and I was like, you're not wrong. (laughs) I mean, it really was true, but that's a terrible thing to hear from a 15 year old, you know, and trying to figure out how you can change that for them is challenging. How has the experience of being a CASA affected your relationship with your kids? Um, I think it's opened their eyes a lot, actually. I mean, my kids ended up, you know, and I can't really, you know, I can't talk about specifics of cases with them. I mean, you really are supposed to keep kind of a wall up. Um, But just, you know, in generalities, and they both also read the book, uh, it inspired them to collect Halloween costumes at their Mm -hmm. school to donate. Um, Because a lot of these kids don't get Halloween costumes, you know, they don't really get Halloween. So they collected over 300 costumes at their school. And I think, you know, it made them kind of realize how fortunate they are, in a lot of ways. I mean, 
you know, I'd like to say it makes them appreciate me all the time, all the more, but <laughs> yeah, that's no. actually not the case at all. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, that was the goal is to make kids who might not be aware that any of this is happening, you know, to give them like a little window into the, these, the lives of a foster kid. I want to read the stats just one more time um, about the foster care system, the situation in L.A. Um, Again, it's Los Angeles County foster system where 30,000 children have been abused or neglected, are under the jurisdiction of the dependency court. Mm -hmm. What does that mean, the dependency court? So it's DCFS. They're basically, yeah, it's it's children's court. Okay, which is what we were just talking about. Okay. One third of these children are ages zero to five yikes infants and toddlers are the fastest growing group of abused children yeah casa la provided one-on-one advocacy for um, over a thousand children in 2018 in addition to over three thousand children with day of court assistance through shelter care so is that something that you do the day of court so I have I I work with the kids specifically. There's different causes who are cited to shelter care, and shelter care is literally um, kids who get brought in. A lot of them are coming in from group homes, and there's a whole separate section of the courthouse with like a movie going on and games and books and toys, and that's where the kids wait to be brought up to court. Like if they're not coming in with a legal guardian or a family member. Um, they're sent to shelter care and they stay there, they go up for their court hearing and then they come back down. So it's, you know, people try, they try and make it as cheerful as possible. It's just, you know, it's hard. Nobody wants to be there. Right. I mean, it's not a fun day for anyone involved. Um, and you know, and I, and generally like, I think most of the cases tends to be more neglect than actual abuse by and large, you know, the vast majority of cases are reports of neglect. Um, and a lot of the parents, you know, end up really turning it around. I mean, there's, mm. you know, another friend who was working with a three-year-old who was reunited, you know, the parents really worked hard and did all of the classes and everything they were supposed to do and, you know, and ended up getting reunified. And so, you know, there are happy stories that yeah, come out of it. I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. Just when you look at these numbers, though, it's very overwhelming. It's staggering. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's absolutely staggering. Um, so if people want more information, org. Yes. Is their website. Yes. And there's also, if you're not in L.A., it is a national organization. There's CASA and GAL, G-A-L, and those are both um, basically do the same thing. Within the United States. Within the United States. I mean, really, wherever you live within the United States, there's a CASA office near you that you can volunteer for or, you know, donate money to or go to. Most of them have events. Like, we have this really fun art and wine night where, you know, you buy a ticket and you go, it's a, it's a really great combo. It's a really fun night. So, you know, if you don't have time to actually become a CASA, there's so many different ways that you can help. I mean, there's once a year, they collect prom gowns and suits, Mm. not just for prom, but for business interviews, you know, to give people something like the kids, something where they can dress up. Like there are so many ways to help. So I just recommend going to any of those websites and looking and seeing what they need and seeing if you can provide it. Let's talk a little bit about some of the organizations that you do support and and work with. And you're the dean of Camp Camp Transcend Family. Yes. 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 Is it Camp Transcend Family Camp? Uh, we just a... call it Camp Transcend, but okay. it is a family it camp. It is a camp. Yes. Now this just took place in May. 
the last one. The yes. last one took yeah. place in May on Mother's Day weekend. Ah, that's perfect. <laughs> um, and that was held at Camp de Beneville Pines. Um, it is, um, okay. but it's is this ongoing? This is usually where it's held. It's on. It's on. It, we are generally there. Um, you know, but we are a separate entity yes. from that camp. And yes. we basically it's just a just, facility that exactly you, we that just you use their space for the retreat for the camp. Exactly, okay. and it's like a it's a Friday through Sunday. It's a weekend retreat, and we have families. The entire family comes, and our youngest kids are four, and our oldest are eighteen. Um, and I kind of took it over from a previous group that has an East Coast camp uh, for transgender and gender expansive kids. And it was just too much for them to run both camps. Yeah. So I ended up very foolishly assuming the <laughs> reins a couple of years ago. And um, so that's become a big part of what I do is, you know, we have about 100 people and we have counselors and we do everything from support groups to archery and s'mores and a really amazing talent show. You had me at s'mores. Oh, and and a, a rock and dance party is we close it out with like glow sticks and <laughs> music and the kids DJ and it's really fun. So if people want more information on the camp, do yes. they connect with you directly or do they go through They can connect with me directly or do a search for Camp Transcend. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um so you're also an organizer of the Gender Odyssey LA conference? I am, although I'm not doing that this year because they've moved down to San Diego. I was going to say they're in San Diego yeah. August 1st through the 4th. Yep, they've switched down to San Diego. It's an amazing, amazing conference, though. I highly recommend it. Uh, it says uh, Gender Odyssey is an international con- international. Yes. Wow. International conference focused on the needs and interests of transgender and gender diverse children of all ages, their families and supporters, and the professionals who serve them. So it's like a three day conference, and everyone comes together to just talk and. They have all sorts of different panels. I mean, they have panels where um, there are kids, like the kids that will talk about their experiences. They have medical panels given by professionals. They actually have a professional track for like therapists or teachers or doctors who might have trans patients and not know how to deal with that population. That's fabulous. Yeah. Just having that education. Absolutely. Is priceless. Definitely. It gives people direction. Yeah. And the feeling of like, we're not alone. Like this is doable. Right. This is doable. We have a support system. And people can go to genderodyssey.org. Yes. For more information on the Gender Odyssey LA conference. That will be in San Diego this year. Um, you're also a supporter of the Transgender Law Center. And man, I was reading <laughs> up on these folks and yeah. what amazing work they do. Um, Transgender Law Center, TLC. Yep. Come on, they do that on <laughs> That was great. Is the largest national trans-led organization advocating self-determination for all people, which I love. Yeah. Grounded in legal expertise and committed to racial justice, TLC employs a variety of community-driven strategies, which I love. Right. To keep transgender and gender non-conforming people, which I love, alive, thriving, and fighting for liberation. Um, I didn't know any... Thing like this existed. <laughs> yeah, no, they've been busy the last couple of years. I it's, can imagine. Yeah, all the bathroom bills and, you know. The, things are changing so fast. Things are changing so fast. You know, the way we communicate, you know, he, she, all, you know, all every the language is changing. Right. How we respond and communicate with people is changing so quickly. Yeah. No, and this is a very different generation coming up. And I think that, you know, the kids that I've been working with at the center and, you know, kids like Shane and the other boy, um, What's so interesting is they're almost, they are very unique from uh, 
having a, uh, in terms of having a very different experience from the older generation of trans people because these kids, you know, if they do have support from their parents, they can get hormone blockers so they never go through a puberty that they don't feel comfortable yeah. with. They can get cross hormones at an earlier age so that they end up developing as, you know, a boy or a girl if that's what they identify as. So it's really different in a lot of ways. Um, and it's created this kind of unique population that are trailblazers. And, you know, and that's a great thing and it can also be a scary thing. Yeah, because it's trial and error. Right. When, at the inception of something, there's that's where all the mistakes happen. Exactly. And all the extremes happen. Exactly. You know, both not just in practical experience, but in people's point of view and right. opinions. Everyone's on opposite sides of the spectrum. Yes. And before they can come to the middle and be able to talk. Yeah. And talk about all this good stuff. Um, you're a supporter of the Gender Spectrum Organization. Right, which is also much like um, Gender Odyssey. They have a conference actually coming up soon. They're uh, in San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. Um, and they have also a lot of really wonderful online resources and lounges, quote unquote, that are, you know, online support groups. Um, so they're fantastic. I mean, you know, there's so many great organizations now. There's so much more support than there yeah. used to be. It's really But the information incredible. needs to get out there. It does. You know, people need to know where they can go. Yeah. I didn't mention for the Transgender Law Center, they can be found at transgenderlawcenter.org. Mm-hmm. Um, Gender Spectrum can be found at genderspectrum.org. Yeah. Um, Human Rights Campaign. Yes, well. Amazing organization, them. hrc.org. Uh, Human Rights Campaign is America's largest civil rights organization working to achieve lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer equality. Now, they've been around a long time. For a long time. Yeah. Um, it must be overwhelming and amazing for them at this point in time to have such a voice. Probably like never before. I mean, yes and no. Yeah. I think that, you know, this has been a tough couple of years, you know, and I think that. It's, you know, there's been, you know, everyone's had to sort of stand up and fight. I mean, I think that's the thing is that um, under this particular administration, we are sliding backwards in a lot of ways. And, you know, as a queer person, like I, I feel very strongly like it's it's scary and um, and it's upsetting. And all of these organizations need support from allies, you know, everyone needs, if you, if these things make you angry, if all of these restrictions, you know, they're talking about taking away like protection for medical protection. Like if basically if an ambulance shows up and there's a trans person or a gay person and the ambulance uh, worker doesn't feel comfortable because of their religious beliefs treating them, they can literally leave them on the street. You know, I mean, that's just happened. I mean, it's it's crazy. Like the things that are happening, I'm not sure everyone's aware of how awful it is or you can be discriminated against when it comes to housing or to employment. So someone can refuse to hire you. And all of those laws had been changed um, under the Obama administration. And now it's all being reversed. Mm. So it's been really hard. I mean, I think that these organizations are doing everything they can, um, but it's it's a bit of an uphill battle. So if you want to support Human Rights Campaign, it's hrc.org. Um, and you, you also, I love this organization, you volunteer for LifeWorks at yes. the LA, LA, LA LGBT Center. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be found at lifeworksla.org. Um, and they just have amazing programs. They've they do. They've got so many amazing programs yeah. for the community. They do. So my specific one is I work as a mentor there and I um, mentee, you know, I've been working with the same child actually since uh, they were 13. 
Um, and, you know, it's just like sort of what I do as a CASA, like providing support, like filling in the gaps, you know, being like another ear to listen and a shoulder to lean on, you know. Did all of this, um, all these organizations that you work with and support, did this come first? Was this always something that you wanted to participate and, and, and help with? Or was it the writing that just kind of helped you say, you know what, I want to be a CASA. I want to which came no, first. you know, I come from a family. I mean, I actually come from a family that has, you know, I was raised with a long line of belief in service, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like my father, you know, founded and ran a nonprofit. One of my sisters founded and runs a nonprofit. Um, I, it's just always, you know, we spent Thanksgiving, you know, at, at a soup kitchen. Yeah. Like it was just always a really important part of our lives. Like community Yay. service wasn't something you did for, you know, a college application. Like it was just something you did because it was important to give back to the community. And that was something that was really ingrained in me from an early age. And it's something that I try and ingrain in my own kids, because I do feel like, you know, if everyone just gave a couple of hours a year, even it would have such an impact. The lives that you're touching. Yeah. And and whatever you want to volunteer in, you know, it doesn't have to be one of these organizations. It can be anything. But if, if you devote yourself to that and give that time, it makes a huge difference in the life of someone else. And what I've always believed if, is that if you can just change one life, mm. it has a ripple effect on the rest of the world. And, you know, forever, that, forever. Yeah, yeah, forever. So we're going to, before we wrap up, you know, let's show the other boy. Because this is a, such a special story. So the other boy is now available in paperback and people can just go online or. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, you know, uh, independent bookstores. Barnes and Noble, Amazon, I think Target even. Perfect. Yeah. Target. <laughs> and then, of course, the Echo Park Castaways join the adventure of these four very special little angels. Where can people find you on the social media? Oh, boy. I know. Oh, I, you know what? Before, Robert Robertson Branch of L.A. Public Library. Right? Oh, yes. Right? So next you've Thursday. Got a, you've got a little public appearance going on next Thursday. I do. One week from today. And I'm... so what are you going to be doing at the public library? Um, I'm going to be talking to a group of teens and other community members, you know, about some of the stuff I talked about today. But, you know, also with events like that, I try to keep it as interactive as possible. So if people have questions about the books or what I do, like I like to keep it lively that's yeah keep them engaged <laughs> exactly which isn't easy it's always a challenge so where can people find you um so i am at mghennessy.com okay. and it's ey not why like the drink <laughs> uh and i am on instagram and twitter and facebook i'm pretty easy to find on all of those places i will say i'm not a huge social media person i i try but i find it to be a huge distraction so um, I'm actually like considering having my kids just take it over, but there I do, <laughs> I do respond. And really, the easiest way to get in touch with me is email. Okay, and again, all these organizations and their websites will be up on the YouTube channel um, that AfterBuzz TV puts up that will air this show. So please investigate these organizations. They're doing amazing work. They're changing people's lives forever. MG, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so for much. these stories, for these voices, um, and just for your passion. Oh, thank it you makes, so much for having such me. A difference. This was great. Thank you. <laughs> From executive producers Kevin Undergaro, Maria Menunos, and Jeffrey Masters, thanks for tuning in to Book Circle Online. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment. To suggest a book title or their author, you can tweet us at Book Circle On. 
This is Book Circle Online. Thanks for tuning in.